0: You could be turning to 1 Corinthians 15 to begin this day if you want to have a Bible, particularly in the middle of verse 54. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our life in Christ starts with victory, our faith is founded on his victory. Where we begin, where we work from, what we rest on is the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. What Satan is up against is his victory. What our sins have to deal with is his victory. What confidence we have when called to work for his kingdom is his victory. His victory is accomplished, his victory is secure, his victory is completed, his victory is uncontested. When you despair, know that he has brought victory. When you wonder about the future, know that the future has been decided about at a resounding victory from the past. When the road is dark, know that a shining victory from the past echoes to the future. I invite you to stand now to read about a victory in a very well-known story. David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, beginning with verse 48. We'll finally read to the end of this chapter, so all your questions will be answered today, Dean. When the Philistine started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sherim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, Whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live, I don't know, Abner replied. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. David answered. Let's pray. Father, familiarity of stories often makes it lose its luster in our lives. We're quick to pass over them. We've heard it all before. Father, show us what you mean by King David receiving victory over Goliath. Show us what you mean, Jesus, son of David, by your victory. We pray that you would use these words to speak to us today. I pray that you would move me out of the way and say what it is that you desire Give gave us open ears and hearts to receive it, but then to use it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I ended by saying last week that when it comes to what God might call us to do in life, It is not a question of our ability. It's a question of our obedience. Another way of saying this is that the circumstances in any problem in life truly do not matter as far as victory is concerned. It does not matter. We're coming To the head in the story of David versus Goliath, and it's really the story in 1 Samuel so far ahead. The Philistines have been bitter enemies of Israel throughout much of the book of 1 Samuel. We have the summary statement in 1 Samuel 14 verse 52 that the conflict with the Philistines was fierce all of Saul's days. This is a constant thorn in Israel's side. And Goliath is really the personification of that. He taunted them day and night for 40 days. No one wanted to face him, but David trusted God and faced him. And we read again back in verse 48, when the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. The Philistine, we were told earlier in the chapter, verses five and verse seven, that he was loaded down with upwards of one hundred and twenty five pounds of armor. And just the point of his spear was 15 pounds. And so when he started to attack David, I mean, I know Goliath is not a tank, but I feel like you got to hear gears turning and some boot up sounds happening as he's moving forward. Um. This guy is heavy. There's a lot to move. And so David is using speed as his advantage. And he begins running to the battle line to meet Goliath. Verse 49, David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. Now, if you've been in church, we've been building to this moment for three weeks, (laughs) 49 verses, and it's done like that. Oh yeah, verse 50. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. Rush, a swing, and a fall. No sword. A lot of things here. As I said last week, this was like a proverbial dirt bike straddled by a kid with a baseball charging a fully armed locked and loaded tank, and the dirt bike one. Goliath had all the gear on in the world. Goliath cheated. He had a guy out in front holding his shield. Goliath was a warrior from his youth. Goliath had spent 40 days and nights taunting his enemies. Goliath was leading the Philistines. They were literally only 15 miles away from taking Israel's capital cities. Israel's existence was on the line, and it all ends here. Quickly, abruptly. The point is this, that victory is to be had in Christ no matter the circumstances. The stakes can be that high. The road leads to a narrow, dark tunnel. The powers and principalities and darkness can close in. Friends, you can be shackled, held down by weights, guarded by four groups of soldiers, and God will release you in the night as he did Peter. You can be shipwrecked on a deserted island and threatened by poisonous snakes. God will be victorious. You can be in a pagan nation not bowing down to a pagan statue by the crazed tyrannical king who wants you to bow down to. And even if God did not spare you in that fiery furnace that the tyrannical king wants to throw you into, in God there will be victory. God will be victorious no matter the circumstances. And it could be a failure on part of his own people. The Israelites were scared. The king they wanted isn't doing his job. He was to fight their wars for them. They were stagnant for 40 days and nights. Their farms were probably going unworked on. Their powerhouse cities was in the sight of the enemy. They were on the brink of losing The very brothers of the one man who would step up to face Goliath was jealous or were jealous of him, chewing him out on a rival, and all of that ended abruptly, quickly. It all ends here because God will be victorious no matter the circumstances. It will happen. God didn't even need the whole army to band together with changed hearts in a sudden push of confidence. God didn't need some secret infiltrating moles or turncoat Philistines. God took a shepherd boy, a sling, and a stone, and he knocked the threat down. He knocked the giant down. Knocked the one factor that was putting Israel on the rails to non-existence. God could have used an ant, I'm sure, if he wanted to. And Goliath was walking out on the 41st day, and a poisonous ant made it inside his sandal and... But God's got some reasons for King David to be the giant slayer. We'll get there, but I want you to see this. No matter the circumstances, victory. Do you know that today? David's son, Solomon, writes for us, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun can Can one say about anything, look, this is new. And the relevant point here is that there is no new kind of evil, new kind of threat, new kind of, oh, God's never dealt with this. Friends, God became flesh and everyone killed him and murdered him. And when God gets murdered and turns it around to save the world... (laughs) I dare say the circumstances do not matter. Victory is granted by God. And just how God used the very weapon the world used, the death of his son, to then save the world. So we see at the beginning of verse 51 here that David's going to use the Philistine's own weapon to turn the tables for good. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. So step back, David's like, who's this pig blaspheming God? I'll take care of him. Charges him with a sling and stone. Oh, dread! I forgot a sword. I guess I'll just use his. It's not about how Goliath and how invincible and how formidable he looked. Nor is it about David and what he has or hasn't, doesn't have. It's about the fact that God is fighting the war. And no matter the circumstances, God wants and he will have the victory. What does this mean in your life? As far as God is concerned, He will have victory. But I've been attached to this sin for too long. Friends, I have a feeling that if you came out of the womb with that sin, in Christ you will still find the victory. But the corruption of those in power seeps and it has tentacles everywhere. It's too big of where God wants it. He will have victory. The relationship is beyond repair. The God who hates divorce can have victory. The health problems, there are just too many unknowns. The great physician will have victory. The God who became flesh and was murdered and used that will have victory. Simply because God has the victory does not mean that the triumphant army he leads to victory and accomplishes victory is without work. This is the case with David here, verse 51, in the middle of that, when the Philistines saw that their hero, that their hero was dead, they fled. There's a bunch of cheaters. <laughs> doesn't surprise us. Goliath, who won a contest man to man, needed someone to hold the shield for him. Perhaps all that armor was keeping him down. Also part of Goliath's little contest was this little number whenever he talked about it in verses 8 and 9. First he says, choose one of your men. Have him come down against me. And then listen, if he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Goliath goes down in a matter of seconds after the battle starts and the Philistines are hightailing it out of there. A bunch of cheaters. Don't expect worldly enemies to play fair, let alone lose fair. See, if they're going down trying to fight, they won't go down without trying to escape. I can hear it now. Goliath made us part of the equation without asking us. (laughs) We didn't agree to any terms. And so there's work in victory, usually because the enemies are sore losers. I mean, if they they thought about it, they knew that they would be done for. But I suppose so we might have something to do. God's victories come with work afterward. David's victory left work for the Israelites. We read the men of Israel and Judah, so regional names already. Apparently in the nation of Israel, soon these regions would be two separate nations as a split kingdom came after David and after Solomon. But for now, the men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley. This again was the valley of Elah. And I have emphasized several times, only 15 miles away from all the capital cities of Israel, where King Saul ruled from Gibeah, where David came from Bethlehem, where Saul, excuse me, where Samuel conducted worship services, Mizpah. But now the men of Israel and Judah were chasing the fleeing Philistines back up towards Philistia and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sherem road to Gath and Ekron. Those are two powerhouse capital cities of the Philistines, Gath being Goliath's hometown. Back when David and Goliath were sharing trash talk earlier in the chapter, we heard David say to Goliath and implicate the rest of the Philistine army. He says, today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down and remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Now, usually I tell you to replicate what you see in the Bible. Good luck with that. But, but we see now that when coming from a man filled with the very spirit of God who is granting him the victory, every word is true every word counts as morbid as a reminder this is let it remind us of this god does not lie do you believe his word do you believe this book death has been swallowed up in victory where death is your victory where death is your sting the sting of death is sin The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You and I labor not in vain. Victory... Is assured. Read the Bible, God's word, knowing that it's true. It will come to pass for those things that have not passed yet. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His people's, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. These aren't just words to make us feel good. (laughs) They are truth loaded with reality to one day back them up. You and I labor not in vain. You also know what is true, what also has physical implications behind them. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, says Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Labor not in vain. Christ has the authority to send us out. Christ is with us to the end of the age and so we labor not in vain just as David crushed the head of Goliath so Christ crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and just as now the Israelites chase the Philistines down doing the work of victory so the church must answer the commission of our victor Christ and we labor not in vain because we labor From victory. We labor expecting nothing less than what's already been given to us. Most people fight wars hoping for victory at the end. (laughs) When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, verse 53, they plundered their camps. See, the Philistines hot-footed it as soon as they saw their champ on the ground without a head. That's problematic. (laughs) So they lost their own heads. And they left their camps. Perhaps they had their weapons and ran as fast as they could. Not everyone made, made it. We read a little bit back. If you receive the Facing Bench, our newsletter, uh, the, the articles that I've been putting in there have been going through the book of Mark again that I, I preached uh, beginning back in 2016. I believe it was the last article just put out where Jesus has been called insane by his mother and brothers and he's been accused of being in league with Satan by what we would call church today. That's kind of what was mentioned today in our reading of Matthew. Wow, Jesus' own church seems to be doing this. See, the Jewish authorities came down and said, he's in league with Satan, that's how he cast out demons. And Jesus just applies a little simple logic to the spiritual world and says, why in the world would Satan send his minions to do his bidding and then send other minions to undo the first minion's bidding? <laughs> like, Satan does not cast out Satan. No one, he says, Jesus, can enter a strongman's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strongman. Then he can plunder his house. That's how Jesus worded it. Jesus called what he was doing in the spiritual world, healing sicknesses, casting out demons, preaching, plundering Satan's house. This isn't language reserved to Jesus in the New Testament. Paul calls the world under the power of the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. But then Jesus binds him up. So you might ask, well, is he still bound? Well, Jesus says in John 12, now is the judgment of this world, says Jesus when he still walked the earth. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. The strong man is bound, my friends. You and I in Christ have victory and have authority. The victory is bought and paid for and accomplished. The victory is had. We have work to do. But again, that work is a battle in part from victory, not to victory. Then David does something that has commentators scratching their heads. Verse 54, <clears throat> David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem. King Saul reigns from Gibeah in this day. And Jerusalem, so tells us Second Samuel chapter 5, is at this day in the hands of a group of people called the Jebusites until 2 Samuel 5, when David, as king, then takes it over, however many long years after this episode of David and Goliath. What is David doing? (laughs) See, He's not taking it to, to Jerusalem to display the defeated Philistine champion's head in the king's city, because it's not the king's city. It's not even an Israelite city at this time. There are a few theories, but the one that makes most sense to me is a warning. David's not king yet. But he's been anointed, and maybe he already has his sights set on Jerusalem. So it could be that he's serving notice. He may not be the, uh, it may not be the head of one of the dead Egyptians in the Red Sea hundreds of years prior that he can serve to Jerus- the Jebusites at Jerusalem. But it is a severed head of a nine-foot-tall, once-thought-undefeatable champion of the Philistines. Could be David coming and saying, "Here's just a little sign." <laughs> This is, of course, a theory, and it's a theory that I'm extracting from ten English words that tells us, like much of 1 Samuel, the actions of David here, but not the motives or the thoughts or the ethical implications. I don't know why else David would take a severed head to the future capital of Jerusalem that he would reign from. Maybe that's where all severed heads go to in the region. But <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's David, future king of Israel, anointed king now, stating this severed head, this foe of Israel, is a first loud front beginning of the many enemies of Yahweh. See this face of who was once thought unbeatable beaten. Look out. And as for Goliath's things, we read that David put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. Later in 1 Samuel chapter 21, we will find that the sword of Goliath will be kept at a sanctuary that David Famously comes to and he eats the showbread at while running from Saul. But for now, David stores it in his own lodgings. Now the author rewinds time for us a bit back to when David was first setting out to engage Goliath. And we hear this interesting question from Saul, verse 55. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live, I don't know, Abner replied. So here's the interesting thing. If if you have your Bibles open, you can go back to chapter 16 to read that Saul has had this terrible problem of going into evil, depressing spells. And he's so worked up that what does the palace do? Some of his advisors suggest that he hire a personal musician to come and play the lyre to see if it wouldn't soothe his woes. Well, who's hired? Who's hired? David, David's name is floated and selected. The very ending of first Samuel 16, beginning with verse 19, says, then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wineskin and one young goat and sent them by his son, David, to Saul. when David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much. And David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service for he has found favor with me. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play and Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Personal musician. Saul loved him very much, we were told. He became his armor bearer. It would seem that such a relationship would certainly make David known to Saul. But first of all, Let's take note of the actual question of Saul again back in chapter 17. Whose son is this youth, Abner? Notice the question that Saul is concerned about is who fathered David. Now, yes, we're told that Saul sent messengers to Jesse, first of all, to retrieve David. But a simple errand to the boy's parents can be easily forgotten, if not handled Solely altogether by the palace's people for David. Sure, fetch me that wire player you found. Make it happen. I mean, they do all the work of finding whose daddy is and so forth. It could be that. So it could be that Saul's not clueless. He knows this musician and armor bearer when he sees him. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistines, so I'm assuming this is while the rest of the army is chasing down Philistines. Abner took him, that is David, and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. So this is obviously before David took at to Jerusalem. Verse 58, Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. So again, while the text may sound at first like Saul's completely clueless to this supposed musician and one-time armor-bearer, we find that the question Saul had is about David's father, an easily forgotten aspect. Why about David's father? That was part of the deal earlier in the chapter. Free taxes for the immediate family. It also could be that Saul wants to know David's pedigree. He wants to hire David permanently to the army. Wants to know who his dad is. In this culture, you don't look to a resume to hire people. You look to their family, their social status. All this to say, it's not too hard to read this and wonder. Geez, something screwy about chapters 16 and 17. Did Saul not know David? Although it appears he met him a chapter prior. But also a bit closer and slower reading, it's also not too hard to read this and see it works just fine chronologically. Saul knows and remembers David just fine. He just wants some clarification on who he is because this guy just happened to chop off the head of our greatest foe. Maybe I should find out about him. Um. As we zoom out and give it a more Genesis to Revelation lens, did you catch the wording of this question here? Whose son is this youth? Find out whose son this young man is. Whose son are you, young man? I've been reading, as I told you, in the book of Genesis in my own time. And if it's not painstakingly clear already to know that we worship the Son of God... It seems Jewish people have always had a fixation on the idea of son, lineage, pedigree. The first prophecy of Jesus is found in Genesis 3. Eve takes the forbidden fruit. God's filling in all the parties on what's going to happen. And he comes to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve. And he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Offspring, sons, daughters, children, children. He will strike your head, the NIV says, crush your head here, and you will strike his heel. And we seem all too often to look at the scriptures as a string of pearls, right? Instead of something that connects more fluidly. We, we think each verse can be, and sometimes they can be, but they can just be viewed and examined in vacuums. And so quickly we sometimes lose context, we lose the, the underpinning themes. But if you read Genesis in the right way, you begin to realize that this sets a precedent in Jewish thinking. Life, the scriptures, the stories are stories of the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of Eve, or the godly line. And it's as if the author wants us to look and wonder, and so does humanity wants to look and wonder, particularly Eve, who says rather quickly after Genesis 3.15, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She glad she's had a son, a male child. Whose son is he? She's had a child with the Lord. So could this be the promised seed, the promised offspring who will crush the head of the serpent? David crushed the head of the Philistine. He is the victor who brought victory. Whose son is he? Names in the Bible are often significant, if not all the time. David is the son of Jesse. There's only two letters difference between Jesse and Jesus, at least in English. Jesus is the Latinized, Anglicized form of Yeshua. Some even say Joshua. Yeshua means God saves. Jesse, or actually Yishai, means God exists. David is the son of God exists. Let alone the fact the Bible calls Jesus the son of David, but to know that King David is the son of God exists reminds me of what the son of David said. The one who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus is the incarnation of God. And by looking at Jesus, we know that God exists. And Jesus, the son of David, is the victor. Whose son is Jesus? Jesus. The son of God, the son of David, and it is in this son we know we have the victory. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Do you hear the grounding of victory in what Jesus has done? Do you hear the impossibility of any other outcome for those who are in Christ? A few verses back, Paul says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. And I can tell you personally, I find that hard to believe sometimes. All things work together for good. In God's economy, nobody's broke. (laughs) Because every failure is swallowed up by the victory at the cross. Every brokenness is mended by his victory. Every sin is forgiven and even used by his victory. Every trial and error will make its way to victory. When Saul is asking with great wonder and amazement, whose son is David? It is the anticipating echo of the world when they stare with awe and wonder at the cross to find the serpent's head crushed, the world's champion slain, the enemy of the universe bound and destroyed. Whose son is he? That this man Jesus could accomplish such a thing by his very death. He is God's Son. And He is victorious. And He, brother or sister in Christ, is our King. And His kingdom is above every kingdom. And there is no power in the world right now that can or will ever be able to contend with Him. And then that's the King that you serve. And if that doesn't empower you to serve fearlessly, courageously, confidently, without or with abandon that I'm all out of ammunition. (laughs) I tap out. (laughs) In Christ, there is victory no matter the circumstance. Let that victory propel you and me to work, knowing that victory, unlike most wars, is what has already happened at the beginning, and we work, we fight, and we march on against the enemy with the victory given to us at the beginning from the victor who we know and we love and we serve. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we see everything in front of us, and if we're not walking with you daily, we lose perspective. Father, we, we forget that the enemy's head is laying on a field behind us with, and his body far from it. Uh, we forget that you have delivered victory for us at the cross. Father, what's great is that you are not dead, but you are risen. You have overcome the power of death. Death should then lose all of its sting. We should lose all fear of death because we know you have conquered it. Father, it's such a joy to know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That means whatever we're going through, whatever we're facing, does not have to end in failure. And even if it ends in failure on a worldly perspective, you will still use it for your victory. Help us to trust in you and to not trust in the circumstances or to not trust in our own abilities, but rather to just be obedient and trust you because you will deliver victory. We thank you. We love you. And we pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. You are just-